Okay, we will make uh, a start, as I said. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll begin to look at uh, Puritanism. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of this night, for the freedom that we have to come like this, to think about your work in the past, your people in the past, how their lives were uh, have bearing upon our lives today. And we pray that our time together would be fruitful, not only informing us, uh, but challenging, inspiring, encouraging us in our walk today. We ask these mercies for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, so what we've been doing is, uh, in the weeks that we've uh, been pursuing this since the beginning of September, we've been looking at the Reformation. Uh, we spent some time looking at the background to the Reformation. Uh, like any historical event, uh, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. There are causes. And so we looked at some of that in the medieval period, the Middle Ages. And then we looked at the German Reformation, which was really centered in many ways on Martin Luther. Uh, we touched a little bit on the German, Swiss-German reformer, Hodrich Zwingli, and the way in which Luther and Zwingli failed to agree on the issue of the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. And that became a major division uh, in the Reformation. And you really have uh, the, the, the Reformation is split into two wings. Uh, there actually is a third wing, which I'll mention briefly in a second. You have the Lutheran wing, uh, the Lutheran Reformation, which is in Germany, um, Denmark, Scandinavia, uh, the early English Reformation, which we'll get to in a second, was initially influenced by Luther, uh, but its greater influence will be the Reformed tradition, which Zwingli is probably the earliest representative. Probably the most uh, significant representative that we would know is John Calvin. And so we looked at the German Reformation, that division into these kind of two wings of the we call it the Lutheran Reformation. We call it the Reformed uh, re wing of the Reformation. Uh, the third wing that we haven't really looked at are the Anabaptists. Um, two major groups of the Anabaptists around today, Mennonites, various groups of Mennonites, and Hutterites. Hutterites are out west. Um, at some point, hopefully, Lord willing, we could look at maybe Baptist roots, and we could talk about the Anabaptists. Um, both, both wings of the Reformation, the, the Lutheran and the, Magist uh, the uh, Reformed wing of the Reformation, disliked the Anabaptists intensely. And if you'd ask Luther and Calvin, are the Anabaptists part of the church universal? They both would have said no. Uh, and the Anabaptists found themselves persecuted by the Lutherans, persecuted by the Reformed wing of the Reformation, and persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. And, um... So that's a whole story in itself, which we don't have time to get into. And then after we looked at the, the really kind of the French Reformation, John Calvin is the main representative of that. Obviously, there are numerous other figures. And then our attention moved to the English Reformation, what will become what we call Anglicanism. The term Anglican, though, is a 19th century term. And uh, it's very easy to be anachronistic and kind of read back into the past um, our understanding of, you know, our, 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 our perspective that is shaped by more recent events. So, that, so I'm going to talk about the conflict 
in the Church of England between the Puritans and those who oppose them. And often those who oppose them are called Anglicans. But that is not a term that really emerges until the 19th century. Um, the English Reformation is complex, um, more complex in some ways than the French and German. Uh, the French centers on Calvin in many respects, a number of French reformers. The German Reformation very much tied in with Luther. There are political elements, but they're not dominant. And you can understand the French and German Reformations without recourse to thinking about politics. You cannot do that with the English Reformation. The English Reformation is deeply tied in the whole political scene. And we saw this, and we spent some time looking at really kind of two streams of the English Reformation. The first stream is what I would describe as the actual Reformation. It's William Tyndale and the translation of the English Bible. And Tyndale is an enormously important person because 90% of his New Testament is the New Testament of the King James Version. And the King James Version is the Bible for English-speaking people down to the 1960s. And in the last 60 years, we've had a flurry of translations, uh, beginning with the uh, RSV, Revised Standard Version. And um, one hopes that they, that kind of flurry of translations has actually come to an end, because at this point in time, we've got probably half a dozen to a dozen translations, and there are numerous languages in the world that don't even have a Bible. And so I, I would argue, you know, okay, you, you're interested in translating the Bible, learn another language that doesn't have a Bible, and translate it into that language. Um, but the King James Version, then, is uh, very, very important in the history of English-speaking Christianity. Tyndale is central to that. So Tyndale has enormous influence through his translation, which becomes central to the King James Version. And also, I wanted to emphasize that at the heart of the English Reformation is the Bible. Uh, by the time that Tyndale dies in 1536, there's around 30 to 35,000 copies of his New Testament and parts of the Old Testament that have been printed. Uh, the English-speaking people at that time in the world were about 1.5 million, of whom about 30 to 40 percent, uh, well, men could read and write. Uh, very few women could read and write in this period. Um, I'm not going to talk at a length about this man, a man named Richard Greenham, a Puritan pastor at a place called Dry Drayton, a little village, then still a little village north of Cambridge. I've been there two or three times. Uh, when he went to that parish, about 800 people, half of them women, not one woman in the parish could read or write. And uh, that would be pretty typical of the 16th century. So literacy was mostly men, but even then it's not a vast majority of men. And uh, so let's say 30% let's say of, of the 1.5 million could read and write. Let's, for my sake, uh, say half a million, 500,000 people. Uh, that's probably too liberal, but be that as it may. And you've got 30,000 copies People did not have, as we do, multiple copies of the Bible. There'd be one copy possibly in a home, one copy in a church. Uh, we have stories of 10, 12, 15, 20 people spending hours reading the Bible because this had not been possible uh, prior to this point in time. And so the impact of Tyndale's New Testament is enormous. And I would argue that the beginning of the English Reformation is directly linked with William Tyndale and his translation of the Bible into English. 
But the other element of the, of the English Reformation, and I'm now summing up more recent uh, weeks, is uh, Henry VIII. And Henry's deep marital problem, which is he wanted a male heir. And his first wife, who was a Spanish Roman Catholic princess, Catherine of Aragon, um, gave him a female daughter. Obviously, daughters are female. And uh, uh, a daughter married, who becomes Mary I. Um, but then she had a series of miscarriages, stillborn children. And Henry finally becomes convinced that uh, there's a curse on their marriage. And if you go back into the earlier history, she had been first married to uh, Henry's older brother, Arthur, who had died of TB. Um, and their father, Henry VII, had requisitioned the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, uh, Julius, Julius II, to grant an annulment of that marriage after his first son died. That is, it was never a legal marriage. And uh, Henry VII argued his son Arthur had never actually consummated the marriage, even though they'd been married a year. And we don't need to get into that, and I'm not sure if anybody knows the truth about that. And uh, Julius then wrote back and said, well, that's fine. Henry, uh, Henry, your, your son Henry, the future Henry VIII, can marry her, and it'll be a, a, a legitimate marriage. And uh, Henry's reading in the book of Leviticus, where he comes across that verse, thou shalt not marry thy brother's wife. And that almost definitely has to do with a, a man who divorces a woman, and then an, uh, his brother comes along and marries her. And that's what that's forbidding. It's not forbidding the scenario that Henry was involved in, namely his brother's wife was widowed, and then he married her. But he's convinced God's curse was on the marriage, and it gave him a, and it gave him a verse to demand from the Pope uh, release from his marriage. Uh, the Pope didn't, didn't agree with that at all. He would have, but only one big snag is that the nephew of Henry's first wife was Charles V, the King of Spain, the most powerful monarch in Europe, and he basically warned the Pope that if he gave, him an annul gave Henry an annulment, that would be the last thing he'd ever do as a Pope. And so the Pope played for time. Finally, Henry, after a few years, you can imagine you know, letters would take six months, four, five, six months to get to Rome, and then the reply back. And uh, Travel was very slow in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. Uh, in fact, somebody in Jesus' day could travel faster in, the, in what is now Europe than anybody in Europe down to the time of Jane Austen in the early 1800s. Uh, roads were not efficient and whatever. And so it would take time for these letters to go back and forth. Years go by, Henry's antsy, Finally, somebody suggests to Henry, if you are the head of the church, you could grant yourself your own divorce. Uh, kind of like the, re I don't know if you've seen the reasoning uh, that's gone on recently about uh, uh, Donald Trump, that if he gets convicted, and, but then gets elected as president, he may be in prison, but he can pardon himself. And you've got this kind of weird scenario. And uh, you have that kind of scenario there. Um, Henry makes himself the head of the church and grants himself his own divorce. And he actually calls himself the head of the Church of England. Um, his daughter, who is born to his second marriage, because after he divorces Catherine of Aragon, he marries Anne Boleyn, hopes for a male heir, and lo and behold, there's another girl, who is our, uh, uh, our present monarch's forebear, Elizabeth I. Obviously not to be confused with Elizabeth II. 
And uh, she would become a great queen. She actually would be a remarkable monarch, but uh, Henry still wants a male heir. And uh, he will eventually uh, have trumped up charges against Anne, accusations of incest. He'll chop her head off and marry her lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour, and he'll get his male heir. And uh, Edward, as is the boy is known, will become the king in 1547. He's 10 years old, and he is deeply committed to the Reformation. And uh, the, you might be thinking, okay, 10-year-old boy, how much would he know? Well, we actually have essays. We've got about a 50 to 60 essays written in English and about the same amount in Latin, beginning when he was about 12, that certainly convinced most scholars today that this young man had a good idea about what the Reformation was, why it was needed in England. And for uh, the years of his reign between the ages of 10 and 16, between 1547 and 1553, uh, the Reformation pushes ahead in England. And so this is the political Reformation, but at the same time you've got Tyndale and the Bible being preached, and so on. So what I want to do tonight is uh, I want to talk a little bit about Puritanism. And I'm hoping that, uh, Lord willing, in the spring, uh, what we call the winter, I guess, in January, we'll do another series and we'll look at the rise of Puritanism, uh, the emergence of Baptists, and so on. And so I'm really giving you a bit of a taster uh, for that. Uh, the English Reformation, some people talk about the English Reformation beginning in the 15-teens, the same as the German Reformation, and really running for the best part of over 100 years. Because there are all kinds of struggles, as we'll see, that go on in the Church of England. And eventually those struggles will issue in religious war. And so the sort of thing that we've seen in recent years, since, uh, say, 9-11, um, it's very interesting reading historians in the late 20th century. Uh, they would argue, you know, the, the age of religious war is over. And uh, anybody who knows anything about parts of the world like the Middle East would not... Like these, these people are fooling themselves. They have no idea the larger picture of uh, the world in which we live. And a lot of historians in the West, uh, men that I read when I was in university, were not interested in studying religion. <laughs> religion is a dead thing of the past. Uh, we as Westerners have outgrown religion, and the rest of the world will eventually follow us. And then the shock of the last 20, 25 years, uh, that, that there are people in the world who take religion very, very, very seriously, enough to kill and enough to die for it. And um, so we'll see, and we may not get there tonight, we'll see that the conflict within the Church of England will lead actually to civil war uh, between 1642 and 1651. But let me, let me begin then with uh, Henry's uh, daughter, um, uh, Elizabeth. And uh, these are two Puritans. Um, this, this kind of ruffle here is Elizabethan. This is kind of a typical male style at the time. Um, there is actually, I think it's Denmark. Uh, the Lutheran ministers in Denmark still wear this, at least in some of their churches. Uh, this is um, a very famous Puritan leader. Uh, this man here uh, is Richard Sipps. Um, Born around 1570, dies in 1635. Um, very, very significant figure. And uh, very well known for his preaching. And this man is William Perkins. 
And uh, William Perkins was a very, very important theologian, uh, died in 1602. And these men are often, these two men are often regarded as kind of key, key early Puritans. So um, we're not going to get all this, I, I know that. Uh, let me start with what is Puritanism and the term Puritan. Um, I'm not going to get into the big first question there. Uh, the issues, historiographical issues, means all the issues that historians fight about when it comes to Puritanism. Puritanism is a major battleground. What exactly is Puritanism? And how do we define a Puritan? Um, which leads us into the second uh, uh, item, the term Puritan. What is clear is that in our world, the term Puritan is not a pleasant word. So if I said to you, um, I think you're kind of puritanical. Have I given you a compliment or an insult? Yeah, I've insulted you. I've actually said you're probably a very narrow-minded, bigoted individual who's afraid that somewhere, somewhere, somebody somewhere is having fun. And uh, that's, that's, the way one, that's the way one person defined a Puritan. A Puritan is a person who's very upset that somewhere, someone is having a bit of fun. And uh, typical Puritans are usually dressed in dour clothing, usually <coughs> somber colors, brown, black, gray, uh, which actually they didn't wear at all. Uh, they're regarded as killjoys. And uh, a lot of the way in which we use the term Puritan and Puritanical is the result of significant amount of propaganda that came out of their, by their opponents in the late 1600s after the Civil War. And uh, now, certainly the elements are true. When the Puritans run, ran England, which they did between 1649 and 1660, uh, we may or may not got to get to this, they actually had the effrontery at least some of them did, to chop off the King of England's head, Charles I. And when they ran England, and they did run England, uh, they created a republic. Uh, they banned a number of interesting feasts. One of them is coming up in a few weeks, right? Christmas. Christmas was banned in England. And uh, so there is some element of kind of, you know, killjoy, uh, but it's not the whole story at all. And the word Puritan has become a, a really a negative term. So a number of years ago, I was uh, during when we were fighting uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, Canadian troops were there. Uh, we actually lost about 165 men and women in that long period of war. Um, I remember seeing a picture of four Taliban warriors, and it said uh, four Taliban uh, warriors, but it had an adjective right before Taliban. It had four Puritanical. Taliban warriors, and I thought, man, it's a bit of a contradiction in terms, but that's the way that term has come to be used. I think it really kind of captures uh, the problem with the term. Um, but Puritanism is a much richer thing, so I want to talk a little bit about the roots of it, and then some of the controversies, and hopefully we'll get to at least number six with the emergence of the Baptists, and we may even get this far here. So, uh, Puritanism has its roots in Geneva, in where Calvin lived. Um, this is uh, Henry's, Henry VIII's uh, second child, uh, at least child to survive infancy, and that is Elizabeth I. Um, this is the portrait she had made in 1588. 
when she would have been 55. And it was the portrait she had made. If you can actually, you, you can't see it, but in the background here, there is a huge battle going on on the water. It's the Spanish Armada. The destruction of the attempt of the King of Spain to invade England and establish a Roman Catholic government in England. And it was utterly destroyed. And actually more destroyed by wind and storm than by British uh, uh, ships. Uh, so this is known sometimes as the Armada, Armada portrait. Um, Elizabeth never married. Um, Virginia is named after Elizabeth, right? Uh, the Virgin Queen. And uh, one of her uh, sailors, who was part uh, kind of Royal Navy, part pirate, part rascal, named Walter Raleigh, uh, founded Virginia and uh, named it after uh, his queen. Now, she becomes queen in 15, eight, uh, 1558. And she becomes queen after her sister, half-sister, Mary I, has died of ovarian cancer. And uh, Mary was a hardcore Catholic. She never forgave uh, the uh, Protestants and Evangelicals in England for the divorce of her mother, uh, uh, Catherine of Aragon. And when she became queen in 1553, she begins to systematically arrest all of the key leaders of the Church of England beginning with the Archbishop uh, Thomas, Cranmer, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who she burns at the stake in 1556. She then burns as many bishops as she can catch. Nicholas Ridley, um, Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer is probably the greatest evangelical preacher in England in the 1530s, 1540s, 1550s. She burns him at the stake in 1555 in Oxford. If you ever go to Oxford, there is actually a cross in the middle of a street called Broad Street, um, it used to be uh, a ditch running outside the, the walled city of Oxford, but now it's a, it's a, it's a main street right in the heart of Oxford. Um, if you ever go to the book, a bookstore called Blackwell's, which is a fabulous bookstore. I love bookstores, right? And uh, four floors of books. It's got a cafe there. You can spend your whole day there. Add a lot of money. And uh, only about 100 yards from that is this cross where uh, Queen Mary burned Ridley and Latimer, and then a few months later, um, uh, Thomas Cranmer, John Hooper. You don't need to remember all these names or maybe even know these names, but these are all very important leaders. Uh, she burned him. John Rogers, who was converted through William Tyndale's witness and worked with Tyndale on the translation of the Old Testament, she burned him. She burned around 300 men and women. And England had seen this in the Middle Ages occasionally, you know, every 15, 20 years, they might have caught a heretic, quote-unquote, and burnt them. And that's probably even too many. Nothing like this had ever happened in England. Um, what Mary did, she was married to the King of Spain. She brought the Spanish Inquisition from Spain. Uh, Spain had established this Inquisition uh, because Spain had once been Muslim. And the Catholics in Spain had waged a war for about 800 years to push the Muslims out of Spain. And because there were still many people in Spain who had Muslim sympathies, they established the Inquisition to root that out. And what Mary did was she brought the Inquisition to England and began to burn English leaders. Uh, her, her thinking was, if we kill all the leaders, the church will follow me back to Rome. Because really, the church loves Rome. 
It's just these, these men have led the church astray. She was deeply wrong. Uh, by the end of her reign, she's burning uh, what we would describe as ordinary men and women. Probably the most, one of the most shocking is a woman who had just given birth. Her neighbors denounced her as an evangelical. They were leading her out to burn her. Some of her friends yelled out, she's just had a baby, hoping that would save her. Uh, they went into the house, found the baby, and as they were burning her, they threw the baby into the fire. And people watching this were horrified. They'd never seen anything like this. And instead of destroying evangelicalism and evangelicals and Protestants and giving them warm hearts to Rome, they become convinced that Rome is a major persecutor and that Rome actually is the Antichrist. And that will be a major thinking in uh, English Christian thinking all the way down to the early 20th century, that Rome is the Antichrist. Um, she dies in 1557. 1558, sorry. Uh, she actually thinks she's pregnant, but she's actually got ovarian cancer. And uh, her husband, Philip II of Spain, will, uh, 30 years later, lay claim to the throne of England by trying to invade. That's the Amada. So if, you're, if this is all boggling your mind, bear with me, we are getting to the Puritans. So some of the men and women who um, fled, they didn't, sit, they didn't hang around England waiting to get burned. Um, I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that says if there's a time of persecution, you've got you to go out and say, here I am, you can burn me or kill me. Uh, Jesus actually does say, if they persecute you in one town, lead to the next. So there's nothing wrong with going into hiding in some ways. If you get caught, right, you've got to confess your faith. But uh, about a thousand men and women fled England for the continent. And a lot of them ended up in Geneva. And what they saw in Geneva was, in their minds, the purest type of Christianity they'd ever seen. They saw a church that was Presbyterian. Right? The elders ran the church. It was a company of elders. Uh, they were the authorities in the church. The, the locus of authority, the center of authority, the decision-making was in the board of elders. And then there were a variety of deacons who helped the poor. Uh, there were all kinds of charitable works that the church in Geneva did. The town had about, uh, by the time these men and women get there, had about twelve to 13,000 people. Um, when Calvin came there in 1536, there were about 8,000. By the time he died in 1564, the town had doubled in number. And a lot of the local people, Genevans, complained mightily about all these immigrants. And that, that sort of complaint is not a, not, not a new one. And, and a lot of the immigrants spoke French. Right? They're French, but they're not from Switzerland. They're from France. And, but there were all kinds of others there. Hungarians, Italians, Spaniards, Dutchmen, Scots. John Knox is there, for example. And a variety of Englishmen who have fled England. And it's there that they come up with the idea of why don't we do a new translation of the Bible, which is this, the Geneva Bible. This is a 1599 edition. Remember, the King James Version doesn't come out to 1611. This is the Bible the Puritans love. This Bible, the Geneva Bible. They don't like the King James Version. Which when we get to it, I'll tell you why. What they love about this Bible is that it's, it's a very faithful translation. It's actually a very good translation. But it's got all kinds of study notes along the margins. 
And in fact, uh, most people in their homes, even most pastors uh, during this period and well into the 18th century, most pastors had maybe 30, 40 books in their library. Um, I suspect you've probably got more books in your house than most pastors had in this period. And so a Bible that had all kinds of study notes and at the back a concordance, tables, maps, all kinds of study helps was an absolute gem. And the man uh, who translated this Bible, uh, one of the leading men was a man named William Whittingham, who is a brother-in-law of John Knox, the Scottish reformer. Uh, what they wanted to do was pr- pr- get a Bible that they could give to a family. And those people had no other study helps, but they just needed that Bible. And the, that Bible could give them enormous amount, not only the scriptures themselves, but the study notes would help them understand the Word of God. And... Uh, the study notes are interesting. So I'll, I'll, give you two, I'll give you three examples of the study notes. We'll begin with the uh, one that is already linked to what I've already said, and that is that Rome is the Antichrist. Um, in the book of Revelation, I think it's Revelation 9, uh, John sees all kinds of horrible creatures coming out, out of the bottomless pit. And in the study notes, it explains what that are. These are, it says, monks and friars and priests of the Roman Church. Ah, now we know what. Now we know who the enemies are in the Book of Revelation. Okay. Um, or very. This is very interesting. In the Book of Proverbs, there's a number of verses in Proverbs that deal with marriage and what you're to look for in a spouse. And there's one little comment where it says uh, it gives advice to um, parents. It, it advises them that as they think about encouraging their children to marry, they need to encourage to, them to marry for love's sake. And uh, that where there is no love, there should be no marriage. Uh, this is quite, you might think this is, well, hey, isn't that the way it's always been? No. Uh, no, no, no. But you have a lot of arranged marriages in this period. Not only the wealthy, a lot of arranged marriages. In fact, um, uh, um, I'm not sure I'd want to confess this in front of my kids, but uh, <laughs> when my kids started into their teens and talking about dating, my wife and I started to realize, you know, rich marriages, they've got some benefits, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we actually did try it. <laughs> we tried to set up, we have a very close friend, uh, Kirk Wellam, who is the principal of Toronto Baptist Seminary. And my wife and his wife, Debbie, are very close. And so they hatched a plot when my daughter was about 18 to get my daughter to go out with their son. And it, it didn't work. <laughs> but you can, you can see why. You know, you know the family. You love the family. I mean, we know the extended family really, really well. Um, you know, one of, their, one of his brothers is uh, my chiropractor. I was there today. Another brother handles my finances. Uh, and two of them, I, I, one of them, well, one of them I work with at Southern, uh, the other one, Kirk, is a very close friend. So you know the family, and you think, man, it'd be great for our daughter to marry into this family. So I, I can see the value of arranged marriages, but uh, that's not the way we do things. Uh, and again, you know, I won't get into all this. Uh, it'd be interesting to look at our Western model of marriage, where you marry for love, and countries where they still do arranged marriages. And divorce rate in those countries as opposed to Western divorce. Anyway, that's something for you to think about. 
Uh, and so, but this is quite revolutionary. That parents need to cons consider: Does their child love the person that they're going to marry? Um, and then the the, the 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 comment that was quite revolutionary, and this is in the book of Exodus, Exodus one. If you remember in Exodus one, uh, Israel has been uh, enslaved by Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is very upset that the male boys in Israel are multiplying at an, an enormous rate. And if, 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 if things go on as they are, the Israelites will take over the country. So he advises midwives to kill the baby boys when they're born. And we have two midwives who um, uh, don't do that. And when they're brought before Pharaoh, they dissemble, right? They lie. Uh, they basically say, before we can actually get to the mother who's in childbirth, uh, 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 the baby's been born and we don't have a chance to kill the baby. Whatever. And in the margin it says, were the midwives right to disobey Pharaoh? Huh? <laughs> so you can see the, uh, the implications. Is it ever right to disobey the government? And the answer is yes, they were right to disobey Pharaoh. For you must obey God rather than man, but they were wrong to dissemble. Lie. And not surprisingly, uh, the man after whom the King James Version is named, King James, the first of England, the second cousin of our, our queen here, Elizabeth I, uh, he hates the Geneva Bible. It's the Bible that's used in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and when he gets the opportunity to get a new Bible translation, which gets named after him, he likes it, and he specifies no notes. Anyway, so the roots, the roots lie in Geneva. These men, they're in uh, the Church of England. The Church of England is what we call Episcopal, right? It's got bishops. So we have to think here of governance in it. And don't think of the way things are run today. This is then. So the supreme governor of the church is this woman. She's the, she doesn't call herself the head of the church. Jesus Christ, as she says, is the head of the church. But she is the supreme governor of the church. Is she a Christian? I think she was. In fact, she's a Calvinist. She actually likes Calvin until, until um, Calvin has allows... Well, actually, Calvin knows nothing about it. John Knox, around 1560, writes a book, a printed book, writes a book and prints a book in Geneva called A Trumpet Blast against the monstrous regiment of women. And it's a book that's, that argues that no woman should ever rule a country. And he's aimed it at another Mary called Mary, Queen of Scots, who is the mother of James I, and who is a second cousin of, our, of the Queen. He didn't aim it at this woman, uh, but he aimed it at Mary, Queen of Scots. When Elizabeth read the book, she was confident he ended, John Knox had ended her. It was printed in Geneva. She was furious at Calvin, and she wrote to him, basically furious at him. And we have a letter from John Knox asking Calvin for apologizing to Calvin. I realize I've caused you a real headache with this book. Please forgive me about it. But it is true, he says, that women shouldn't rule countries. Uh, anyway, so she is a Calvinist theologically. But she's the supreme governor of the church. And what she likes about the church in England is 
Okay, so this room can seat about 70 people. That's far more than the number of bishops in England. In fact, uh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, no, 8, 9, 10. Uh, maybe halfway down, you know, these two rows here, these, these two, uh, where our brother's sitting. That's the number of bishops. You can get them all in one room. And basically say, okay, boys, <laughs> this is our language. This is how we're going to run the church. Uh, Scotland, which is Presbyterian under John Knox, has around three to 4,000 elders. In the Church of England's ministers, there's about 8,000 parish churches. There isn't a hall big enough to get all those ministers where she can tell them what to do. So there's no way Elizabeth likes the idea of Presbyterian church government. She likes the idea of bishops. You got an Archbishop of Canterbury, you got the Bishop of York, the Bishop of, uh, of Rochester, a variety of other bishops. She gets them in one room, tells them what to do, then they tell the ministers what to do, right? It's a hierarchical arrangement. And uh, this is a world in which uh, if the bishop, let's say this is, well, we'll call this um, St. West Highland, right? For, for argument's sake. This is St. West Highland. And uh, the bishop lives in Toronto. And we don't have, right? We're, we don't have a full-time pastor yet, right? For seeking one. And uh, so the bishop in Toronto, so who chooses our pastor? Well, the congregation does, right? That's like what's going on here in this world. The bishop chooses... And he sends us the man he wants. Now, if he's a godly man, we'll get a godly pastor. If he's not a godly man, we might get his nephew. His ne'er-do-well nephew who needs a job. Right? This happens all the time. You know? He's got family. You know, they go to the bishop. You know, oh, brother, you know, my son, he doesn't have a job. He needs a job. We'll get him a church. Right. In fact, if you've got... If, you, if you're a very wealthy individual, like a duke or a lord, or an earl, and you've got three or four sons, it's really bad news, because what are you going to do with them all? Only one of them becomes the duke and gets all your land. You can't split the inheritance up, because you do that a few generations, there's nothing to inherit. So where do the other three sons go? Well, army, navy, and the church. They're not becoming lawyers and doctors, because that's, that's a lowly profession. Uh, they're going to go into the church. And so you've got to, the, the Duke or Lord will go to the bishop. Can you get my son to church? And uh, so if this was then St. West Highland, the bishop in Toronto is going to send us our minister. And do we have any cho uh, choice in it? No, none at all. He's appointed. If you don't like him, you're, you're stuck. And we'll see how that plays out. Now, the Puritans and they, we can call them Puritans, who come back from Geneva, they've seen a different model. They've seen a model of Presbyterian government where the church is ruled by the elders, not by somebody, not by some political figure. <coughs> uh, and the elders appoint the elders. Uh, they, they're not appointed by the congregation. This is, a present, this is classical Presbyterianism. Please don't think, okay, this is the way Presbyterian churches work today. They don't. But this is a classical Presbyterianism. So, in Episcopalianism, Elizabeth's system, she will recommend uh, uh, somebody as a bishop, and bishops appoint bishops. And you can see it. I mean, 
It's a kind of lovey-dovey scenario, right? 20 men appointing their buddies. That's, that's all too easily going to happen. Now, you move that into a Presbyterian model, and in a Presbyterian model, the elders, so if, it, if this was a Presbyterian church back there, we'd have maybe half a dozen Presbyterian churches around us, and all those elders, maybe 40 or 50 of them, would get together, and they'd choose our pastor. Do we have a say in it? No. The congregation doesn't have a say in it. If you don't like him, you're stuck with it. And uh, so the Presbyterian model in Scotland was what was in Geneva. These men uh, who will become Puritans and women, they come back to Geneva when Elizabeth becomes queen. When Elizabeth becomes queen, they're thrilled to bits. They now have, um, in their minds, they actually call her our Deborah. And if you remember Deborah in the book of Judges, right? She was used to deliver Israel. And their love of Elizabeth lasts about five years until a controversy emerges over clothing. And um, I've jumped ahead. I think I've jumped. Have I jumped ahead? Yeah. Let me see here. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Let me go. Let me let me go back to this picture. So there's going to be three controversies I want to talk about if we have time. And the first one begins in the 1560s. These, these men and women come back from, from, um, from Geneva, come from Geneva. They love Elizabeth. She's solidly evangelical, Protestant. She likes Calvin. She likes his theology. They love Calvin. Everything's honky-dory. <clears throat> Until a number of years on, about 1562, 1563, there is what's called the vestments controversy. And that is, what should a minister wear when he conducts worship? And, uh, I mean, we, we even have our own standards, right, to some degree. So if the minister turned up in a... Well, I'm, I need to be careful here. <laughs> uh, if the minister turns up in his pajamas... Let me, let me use an extreme example. I think there'd be some eyebrows lifted. The deacons might, and the elders might be talking to the minister afterwards, right? Um, it's never happened to me in a classroom, but I know a friend, one of the Wellams, actually, Stephen Wellam, when he was teaching at Northwest Baptist in Vancouver, um, he had a student come to class in his pajamas with a bowl of cereal <laughs> and a blanket. And uh, yeah, I I've never had anything like that. Um, but that, that that was yeah. The minister turned up with pajamas. Even we 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 were a bit looser than we used to be, right? Um, um, <clears throat> I I know churches when I first started teaching and that and did some preaching. Uh, if you did not go in a suit, there would be some eyebrows raised. I mean, that was simply suit and tie was what was expected, and we we kind of relax that to some degree. And it's similar to that, but it's got a bit of an edge to it. So, um, Elizabeth requires ministers need to wear a specific type of gown uh, with a, a surplus. It's known as a surplus, a preaching stole. The problem is the men who burned Cranmer, Ridley, and Latimer were dressed just like that. And um, I remember years ago, some uh, reading a book, and it was very—it gave a very helpful illustration. It was this: Let's say you're Jewish, 
1930s, and you've got enough foresight to know that you're German, living in Germany, you've got enough foresight to know that things aren't going to be good for the Jews in Germany, you know, a few years down the road, and you leave. And you come back to Germany, 1948, you're walking down the street in Berlin, and you see a police officer who is wearing the SS bars of the uh, uh, SS um, that had been part of the, the organization of, of the Nazi regime. Would you be upset? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you remember, there was a huge brouhaha when Prince Harry went to a, a Halloween party dressed up as a Nazi officer. Uh, you cannot wear a Nazi regalia in Germany. Uh, you can't even do the, the yeah, salute. Uh, they're illegal. It's illegal yeah. And with good reason. So these men and women who come back, they go to their churches and they see men dressed in the same clothes as the Roman Catholic clerics who burned their friends. And their response is, we're not wearing those clothes. And the queen said, you are. You, you can't conduct worship unless you're wearing the right, right clothes. It soon moves, notice what this is going to mean. It's going to soon move from clothing to who's got the authority to command what happens in the church. And so that's where we move then in this next slide. And this is Thomas Cartwright, <clears throat> 1535 to 1603. And in uh, 1570, he was a teacher at Cambridge. He gave a, gave a series of lectures where he said, number one, in the New Testament, there are no such thing as bishops. A bishop is an elder. He's actually right. Therefore, we need to scrap the Episcopal system and install a Presbyterian system. Well, that's revolutionary. And within a year, he was fired. Actually, he had to flee for his life. Um, I don't know if Elizabeth would have killed him. She certainly would have imprisoned him. And, uh, but once you raise the question, who has the authority in a local church to appoint elders? Or to dictate what a minister should wear when he's leading worship? Or any other elements of worship? The Puritans had all kinds of, a number of problems with the Church of England, as it was set up with the bishops. The bishops was only one of them, and the clothing was only one of them. So, um, I don't have a ring on my ring finger, um, as some of you know, as you get older, you get arthritic knuckles. And this knuckle, I'm not sure why this knuckle has become quite arthritic. And I needed to get my ring cut off. It's getting resized. Um, <clears throat> where in the Bible are rings required for marriage? First Corinthians. First Corinthians? In a different way, but. Is there, is there anywhere in the Bible where we get a marriage ceremony and rings are used? No, Lots of marriage ceremonies. No. no. Uh, where, where do we get rings from? Well, it get, comes from Germanic paganism. There was the Germanic people's pagan who used to use rings. Should we use rings? Yeah, of course we should. And that's, a, that's a thousand or more years ago. And we live in a culture that is attacking the institution of marriage. And I think it's important yeah. that we, we wear a wedding rings. We indicate that. We were, my wife and I were at a conference 
last week. That's why we were here down in Texas. And it was interesting. Uh, you, don't, you don't see how you perceive yourself. Uh, we were going up an escalator holding hands, and a couple behind us commented on the fact it's rare to see couples our age holding hands. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it. And they just asked how long we had been married, etc. And we, we live in a culture that is where marriage is under attack, and I think wearing a wedding ring is very helpful. But the Puritans in, said, okay, you can't insist that we use wedding rings. The Church of England insisted in the marriage ceremony in its worship book, called the Book of Common Prayer, which is a beautiful book in many ways. It insisted there has to be a blessing of the rings, the, and the, the, putting the ring on the, the ring finger of, the, of, the, of your uh, spouse. In other words, the Puritans had a number of problems. When we received the Lord's Supper... How should we receive it? Now, we, we've developed a way, uh, we're seated, right? But um, when I was at Wycliffe College, the Anglican Seminary I went to, uh, you would, uh, we, we would have the Lord's Supper uh, on Wednesdays, communion, and you would go forward and kneel to receive it. The standard uh, Anglican, the Puritans didn't like that. But why, why, where in the Bible does it say we have to kneel? So the, the Puritans then are arguing, they're going to argue, only that which is commanded in the Word of God should be done in worship. If it's not commanded in the Word of God, you cannot require it of us. And pretty quickly that becomes an issue of authority. As I said, Presbyterianism is one of the, the uh, models. But as soon as you ask the question, who has authority in the church to appoint elders? to institute rules for how the church works, it's not surprising you will have the emergence of what we call congregationalism. So, uh, West Highland Baptist Church is congregationalist, ultimately. The ultimate locus of authority is the congregation. I'm I'm a very strong congregationalist. And uh, is Presbyterianism in the New Testament? I think so. I think you can find verses that support Presbyterianism. Is congregationalism in the New Testament? I think so. Um, the, the problem comes, and the Puritans will find this, we won't get into this at this point, the Puritans will find themselves in a bit of a fix because they will believe that God has instituted an exact blueprint in the New Testament of how the church should run. And I personally think, and you can disagree with me, I think the New Testament gives us a degree of liberty. That there are principles that are there, I, I think the tendency is towards congregationalism, but I can see, I, when, I, when I'm in conversation with a Presbyterian, we're not talking here about infant baptism, we're talking about how the church is run. I can see where they're coming from, even though I disagree with um, So there are verses, <clears throat> for instance, the appointment of the seven in Acts uh, 6, the deacons. The apostles say, you choose. They didn't choose the deacons. You choose them, and then we'll set them apart. Or Paul will say on a number of occasions, with you, especially when he's uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's uh, disfellowshipping somebody. There's a person who's living with their stepmother, and he's helping the church think through this issue. He says, with you, we have disfellowshipped this individual and turned him over to Satan. In other words, Paul had the authority to basically kick him out as an apostle, but he doesn't use it. He says, you have to also be part, the congregation has to be part of this, this kind of decision uh, to expel this individual. 
So, but as soon as you ask the question, who in the church has the authority, you're going to get congregationalism. Congregationalism, though, is going to raise another issue. So, the Presbyterians, I know this is complex, but this is where we get our denominational differences from in the evangelical across the world. Uh, both Presbyterians and Anglicans will agree, will argue, that the state and the church should work in union. In the uh, Episcopal model with Elizabeth, uh, basically she told, she's the Queen of England. She's telling the bishops what to do. Right? And when the bishops run into a problem, let's say they've got a person in the church who they think is a heretic, they'll use the state to imprison the person. That is the same sort of thing that's happening at Geneva with the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians also believe that in the, what we call the state church. That is, they don't believe in bishops, but they do believe that if they've got a problem in the church, they can, the state can be called in to deal with the problem. Both those systems believe also that everybody in the entirety of a region governed by, let's say, the Presbyterians is going to be part of a Presbyterian church. You get baptized in the Presbyterian church. Your parents bring you to get baptized. So in Geneva, there was no, if you didn't go to church, you were really looked down on. I mean, there were some. But it was basically thought everybody who's born in Geneva is going to be baptized in the local church. And your baptism, your infant baptism is membership in the local church and entry into the state. So both the Anglicans and the Presbyterians believed in infant baptism and tied it to a state church. Once you raise the question of congregationalism, who, who has authority to dictate what goes on in the church? And you say, the members of the church, those who are believers, those who are indwelt by the Spirit, you're also moving in the direction of what we call a believer's church. Who should be a member of the church? Believers. Now, congregationalists will baptize babies, but the babies are not members of the church. They have to come to a point where they are able to confess Christ for themselves, and they will give that testimony to the church, and then they will become a member. So, from the point of view of the state church, the Anglican state church, congregationalism is undermining the state. So, let me give an example. So, this is this is St. West Highland, right? <laughs> oh, so, we start with, we're Anglicans. And we got the bishop in Toronto. And we don't have a minister. And he appoints the minister and sends him here. Everybody who lives within five miles of this church, in fact, none of you live outside of five miles. In fact, you probably all live within three miles. And the reason for that is you've got to walk to church. You don't have cars, we know that. And you don't have horses. Because to have a horse, you normally need two horses. And for every horse you have, you need about an acre of land. And horses are social animals, so you don't have horses. You're not riding the church on a horse, you're walking the church. So you just think on a Sunday morning, how far do you think you want to walk? And you're part of a parish. And St. West Highland has a parish. And if you're born in this parish, you're automatically a member of this church. You don't want to be a member? You can't transfer your membership. You're, this is your church. You're baptized here, you're married here, you're buried here. 
In fact, we have a burial ground out here, which is all the people who have been members of West Hollow. Saint West Hollow. So, now the minister becomes a Presbyterian. The minister now becomes convinced. I'm not going to talk, I don't need to talk about that guy in Toronto. Uh, we're going to appoint elders in this church, and we're going to run the church. We're going to listen to the guy in Toronto, the bishop. You're still going to have a parish, everybody born within three miles, and they're all going to baptize their babies here, and uh, they're members of the church. Now comes along, let's say the minister becomes a convinced congregationalist. And the congregation now is going to vote who gets elected as minister. He is also going to argue who should be a member of the church? Only believers. Not everybody who lives three miles within the, the parish boundaries. Only believers. Only people who can get up in front of the church and give their testimony of conversion. So that means then half of the people living in this parish won't be able to do that. And what's going to happen to them? From Elizabeth's point of view, you're destroying the church. Where all these people, right? They should be members of the church from their baptism as babies. Congregations are still going to baptize babies, but the baptism is a pledge that later in life they will embrace it by a conversion account. So you've got very different models. This is really very, very important to understand where we come from. Baptists come out of congregationalism. Because at some point, once you raise the question, okay, once you come to the, uh, congregations come to, the, come to the realization, the Anglican church is not a true church. I'm not saying they're right, but that's what they'll come to. But we got baptized as babies in the Anglican church. Is our baptism valid? Ooh. And they'll start to search the New Testament for infant baptism. Now, I'm biased. <laughs> I don't think there's one example of infant baptism in the New Testament. There's a lot of believers' baptism. And not surprisingly, some of these congregationalists are going to become Baptists. And so it's a very, it's a very interesting situation. Uh, the Queen, most of the Puritans are Presbyterian. Some of them are congregationalists, and some of them are determined to set up their own congregations, and they become known as separatists. And the Queen is not going to stand that. And she hangs a number of the leaders, and numbers of these men and women initially flee to Holland. Holland is a region of enormous toleration. And from Holland, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, they'll sail to America. Uh, to New England, uh, Plymouth. If you, ever be, if you ever go to Massachusetts, Plymouth Rock. Where they landed in 1620 to establish the colony of Plymouth. And it was established as a separatist congregationalist colony initially. And but that's, another, that's another story. And it's in this context that we get the emergence of the Baptists. So the Baptists come out of this whole discussion about who has authority in the local church. It's a very important question. And uh, as I said, I'm a congregationalist. I think the locus of authority ultimately lies in the congregation. The congregation chooses elders. We obviously give to elders a certain amount of authority, right? Um... There are some congregationalists who argue every decision made by a congregation has to be decided by the congregation. So, should we paint these walls yellow? Well, we've got to take that to the next business meeting. Well, no, no, no. We give, we give the elders permission 
they can spend up to $1,000 or $2,000, whatever it is. I've, not, I've no idea what it is. But we're not debating every little thing like, you know, should we paint walls yellow, etc., etc. But big issues, they need to go to the congregation. You've got, you've got a question. I was just going to say, you mentioned earlier that you feel the New Testament gives a certain amount of liberty. Now, I would push that a little bit. That's fine. I would say that there's quite a bit of liberty. And having yep. been a missionary, yep. I can see how different systems of church governance work better in some cultures than in others. Yeah. We're a very individualistic culture. And I, I think congregationalism or the Baptist model kind of fits us. It doesn't work very well in some cultures. Yeah. No, you're... Yeah, I, I would fully agree. Yeah, I, I was uh, nuancing uh, that I think there is a, a significant degree of liberty in the New Testament in regards... How do you actually do church? In the Old Testament, it's all this detailed instruction on how to make the incense, for example, how to do this, how to do that. And you don't have anything like that in the New Testament. And I think that's, there is a, a, a significant degree of liberty because you're no longer dealing with a church state, theocratic state like Israel, but you're now, the gospel's going out to all these very different cultures. And uh, where, because of our individualism, congregationalism, it works, and other cultures it may not, it may not work. Well, let me, uh, we're at 8.30. Uh, any questions before I maybe just introduce James the first? And uh, we'll, we'll probably stop at this point. I, I got baptized in April, and it, and it struck me as weird that I am confessing my faith as opposed to proclaiming my faith. And you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about how, you know, if you're, if you're prosecuted, you have to confess your faith. Is that where that comes from, or...? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the question. The question is the, the idea of confessing your faith. As opposed to saying proclaiming my faith. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's, in that context there's much difference. I mean, when you're baptized as a believer, you are confessing your faith. Um, you're proclaiming your faith. I mean, the words are fairly synonymous in that. Um, I just find confession is like you're, you're saying I did something bad. Okay, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, so the word confession in English has two main meanings. One is confession of sin. Yeah. The other is confession of the faith. So they're both, they're both legitimate meanings. Maybe, maybe the more dominant association today is confession of sin. Right. Uh, both those meanings go back to a Latin word, confessio, which also has the meaning of praise, which is interesting, <coughs> which we don't have in our word confess. But yeah, both of those, both of those are part of the meaning of the word confess. And, uh, but what, what I think you're indicating is that in your experience, the association with something bad, sin, is the kind of thing that you think of when you hear the word confess. Yeah. But the word confession of faith, so we use, we use confession of faith uh, of, a, of a statement of faith. So our church has a statement of faith. It's also, it, it, we can also call it a confession of faith. And it confesses what we believe. So, um, Elizabeth dies in 1603, and the arrangement was, if she didn't have any children, her Scottish cousin, James VI of Scotland, would become the King of England. And vice versa, if he died before her, she'd become the Queen of Scotland. Now, I have a Scottish wife, and I often joke about this, and um, 
which is this, is that uh, it was a great deal for James, not so good a deal for, for Elizabeth. Because Scotland, you know, it's rugged, it's all these highlands, uh, not much place to grow uh, wheat and barley and rye. So it's a great deal for James, he gets, he gets England, and not a great deal for Elizabeth, she would have got Scotland. Of course, my Scottish wife uh, disagrees with, with that pretty strongly. Um, James, James has been raised a Presbyterian. So the Puritans are thrilled to bits. We've got, we've got, we finally got a monarch who understands us. Right? Elizabeth, they were thrilled to bits initially. And within five years, the thrill wore off because of the whole vestments controversy and then the controversy about authority. The Puritans now, we've got, we've got a king. He was raised in Presbyterianism. He's going to love us. What they don't know is James hates Presbyterianism. He's had, he's had enough to hear with it. Because he's been trying to do things in Scotland, and he's got like 4,000 ministers he's got to deal with. So the idea of coming down to England, and he's got 20 men he can put in a room and tell them what to do, like Elizabeth, it's brilliant. But he's also a very, this is a Scottish term, he's also a very canny politician. And he's not going to tell the Puritans outright. I just can't stand Presbyterianism. So the Puritans meet him. He's coming down to London to get crowned. And they meet him on the road. And they've got a petition that it's claimed was signed by a thousand ministers in the Church of England. That's how strong the Puritans are. There's 8,000 ministers. A thousand of them signed this petition. Petitioning the king to reform the church. And um, the bishops, when they hear about it, tell them, don't give, don't, give, don't give them an inch. They'll take a mile. Don't even listen to them. The, king's, the king is going to play politics. He said, why don't we have a conference? And we'll invite all the bishops, you guys, and we invite the Puritans. And when the conference begins, it's known as the Hampton Court Conference in 1604. When the conference begins, the bishops, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually fell on his knees before the king and pled with him. Don't listen to these men. They're troublemakers. Uh, king, the king is really uh, worldly wise. Well, no, no, I, I want to hear what they have to say. And over three days, actually, a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday, they had all kinds of, it was January 1604, so the days ended early, right, 4 o'clock. Uh, we're already seeing the day, right? We've got about 10 hours of daylight now, uh, 10 and a half. Uh, by 4.30, it started to get dark, right? And um, <clears throat> England's much further high, higher up, so by 3.30, 4 o'clock, it's starting to get dark, and it's on the second day that a very important event will take place. Before that, the Puritans have suggested a number of things they want reformed, and the king says, well, I'm going to take all that under advisement, well, we'll establish a committee, and we'll look into it. And um, not one of those things gets done. The committees drag on for, you know, 8, 10, 12 years, and nothing ever gets done. And if the Puritans ever tell them, you know, like, well, what's happening with the committee? Well, it's, they're talking about it. And he, in other words, he doesn't want outright conflict, and he's going to silence these men politically. Um, the only thing that is acted upon, as it was on the second day, around January the 4th, 1604, 
as it was night was coming on, one of the Puritans said, and sir, sire, we would like a new translation. I've never, his name was James John Reynolds. I have no idea why he asked that. Because the Puritans loved the Geneva Bible. And uh, King James, yeah, <laughs> we're doing that. Because <laughs> he hated the Geneva Bible. Because the notes, especially the note in Exodus, about the, the possibility that you could have freedom to disobey the monarch. So he said, I'm going to establish, we're going to have committees. <laughs> we're going to have three committees. One in Westminster in London, one in Oxford, one in Cambridge. They're going to translate the whole Bible. No notes! Uh, six years later, 1610, they had put the whole Bible, translated. They got one committee together in London. Uh, we actually have the notes of one of the committee's members, a man named John Boyce, B-O-Y-S. And uh, he was promised so much money uh, because he was a parish minister. They promised him that they would pay for his salary. Uh, he lost all kinds of money. He was away from home all, all kinds of time. I'm not sure what his wife thought. Um, but we actually have his notes about the meetings, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, especially, I, mean, I could get the details. I wasn't prepared to go through this. But uh, in Hebrews, I know there was a debate about certain translation. And you can actually see in the notes, somebody suggests the translation we have in the King James Version. Other people said, no, no, I think it should be translated this way, that way. And it's fascinating to hear them uh, discuss the various translations that have become the King James Version. And finally, in 1611, the King James Version was published. And uh, it built, in time, becomes known as the Authorized Version. Um, there is debate about whether it was actually ever authorized by the king. Uh, the Puritans didn't like it. Even though a Puritan had suggested it, I've never figured out why that man suggested it, but the Puritans did not use it until around the time of the 1650s, 1660s, and John Bunyan is probably the first Puritan leader uh, to start use uh, the, what we call the King James Version. And uh, this is the front cover of the Bible as it appeared in 16, notice 1611. The Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original languages, and with the former translations diligently compared and verified by His Majesty's special commandment. And uh, it will become, as I said, the Bible of the English-speaking world. Uh, this is the third controversy, but time has slipped away from us, so we'll pick up here, Lord willing, uh, in the new year, um, if I'm allowed to teach <laughs> uh, at, at, at another series on the Puritans. So. Well, just a few, a few comments. One is, uh, we owe an enormous amount to the men and women of this period. Um, I think one of the great uh, challenges of the world in which we live today, because of the, the emphasis on the future, the present, uh, and we forget the importance of the past. And I hope that the time we spent together has really kind of shown you just the richness of the past and the great debt that we have to men and women who've gone before us, and particularly to, to, those, to those who are believers and who suffered for the faith. And that uh, we, are, we, are, we are the heirs of their labors. Uh, they labored, we've entered into their labors. And uh, we need to be very thankful to God that we have such a heritage. And uh, I grew up in a Roman Catholic context, I uh, knew nothing about this. And uh, then when I was converted, I always loved history. Uh, God led me into becoming a, a historian for the church. And I began to realize just the richness here. Um, 
just the, the, the tremendous legacy that we have that goes really all the way back to the apostolic generation and into the Old Testament era. Uh, we've looked at that little snapshot of the Reformation. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. And we do pray that we would be cognizant and conscious of the debt that we owe to those who've gone before, who loved you, who sought to serve you, and who have given us a rich heritage. Help us in our day uh, to be faithful to what you have shown us in the gospel, to what we have received, and help us to pass on the faith to those who come after us. May your peace be our portion this night, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.